Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who examines the mass murder of black shoppers at a Buffalo supermarket and the white supremacist shooter's embrace of the racist replacement theory being amplified by the Republican Party and right-wing media. Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative, who considers the underutilized power of eight Northeastern state governors to grant clemency to prisoners whose lives were endangered by the coronavirus pandemic. And Mike Mitchell, Groundwork Collaborative's Director of Policy and Research, who discusses his group's research that finds corporate America is price gouging, exploiting pandemic-linked inflation to increase profits. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the aftermath of the February 2021 military coup in Myanmar, the Southeast Asian nation was plunged into economic crisis as the rule of law broke down and the civil war intensified. As people were thrown out of work, many traveled to the northern Kachin state near the border of China, where day laborers were employed to mine for gold. The online magazine Yale Environment 360 reports that over the past year, more than 1,000 people moved to work in the mining boomtown of Ba Ma along the Irrawaddy River. The gold rush has brought instability and environmental destruction to the region, which has endured decades of ethnic violence. On riverbanks, dredging boats crowd waterways, while on land, excavator trucks dig pits into which gold miners blast water to dislodge the earth. Over the last year, gold mining has grown tenfold. The coup displaced the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi, which had imposed modest reforms on extractive industries. But after the 2021 coup, there are now few limits on miners. Critics blame the military and their business interests for resource pillaging as villagers complain of polluted waters, the decimation of fish and wildlife, with landslides and flooding due to erosion caused by mining. South Africa's power utility, ESCOM, went dark last fall with day-long blackouts as the nation was pushing ahead with a transition to clean energy. ESCOM is hampered by debt, corruption, and rules requiring it not to run a deficit. The biggest long-term challenge for the power company is its reliance on local coal supplies to generate power. South Africa has long supported a transition to cleaner fuels. The powerful National Union of Metal Workers began organizing for a just energy transition in 2011 as the UN's COP17 Climate Summit convened in Durban, South Africa. A year later, union members approved a resolution calling for a socially-owned, worker-controlled, clean power initiative. Yet this vision is far from being achieved. The current government transition plan is to invite private companies into the energy sector on the dubious belief that in the competitive marketplace, clean energy will come out a winner. However, the metal workers and miners' unions oppose energy privatization, concerned that the move will eliminate their jobs. As the news magazine In These Times observes, 
South Africa's labor movement has largely succeeded in making the public debate about ownership and power, about who owns energy resources and who decides how they're used, rather than simply about renewables versus coal. Weeks before President Joe Biden traveled to Iowa to boast about new investments in biofuels and ethanol, family farmers testified about the dangers of three carbon capture pipelines under consideration in Midwestern states. In the summer of 2021, the company Summit Carbon Solutions proposed a pipeline project for carbon capture and sequestration that would run approximately 2,000 miles across nearly a third of the counties in Iowa before expanding to Minnesota, Nebraska, and North and South Dakota. According to Summit, the $4.5 billion project will capture, transport, and store 12 million metric tons of carbon dioxide from its 31 partner biorefineries annually, the equivalent of taking 2.6 million cars off the road each year. But a coalition of family farmers, indigenous rights groups, and environmentalists are developing a united strategy to oppose the company's request for eminent domain and to defeat the pipeline. Opponents turned out to testify at a recent public hearing of the Iowa Utility Board where they warned that carbon capture pipelines can be utilized to boost oil production through a specialized process, and such pipeline construction, operation, and maintenance produces more carbon emissions. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The murder of 10 people and wounding of three others, carried out by an 18-year-old white supremacist who targeted black shoppers at a Buffalo, New York supermarket, was another in a list of U.S. massacres motivated by hate and what's called the Great Replacement Theory, designed to instill fear that the white race is under attack. Previous racist mass shootings include the 2015 murder of nine African Americans, at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, the shooting deaths of four Asian Americans in Atlanta in 2021, the massacre of 22 Mexicans and Latinos at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas in 2019, and the murder of 11 Jewish Americans at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh that same year. The vast majority of hate crimes in the U.S. in recent years have been committed by those on the extreme right, The FBI has declared that white nationalist violence poses the most dangerous domestic terrorist threat to the nation. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of the book Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Your reporter spoke with Professor Ben-Ghiat about the Buffalo mass murder in the context of the Republican Party and Fox News' embrace of the racist replacement conspiracy theory and effective ways to defeat dangerous authoritarian and fascist political movements. At its core, it's the idea that uh, Jews and other elites are plotting to import uh, non-whites into Western countries to displace and disempower white people, 
to have more babies, like immigrants who would come in and have more babies. And you have a whole range of variations of this. So racists who think they're going to be diluting the gene pool, people who think they're going to kind of outperform demographically white people. That's part of it. And this goes back to fascism. Um, I've studied Mussolini for many years, and he talked in the 1920s before Hitler came about uh, white uh, people being, he used the word submerged by more, uh, you know, fertile races from Africa and Asia. And then finally, the version that the some of the Republicans are kind of repurposing for America, including Tucker Carlson, says that it's the Democrat elites who are, you know, allied with these shadowy forces and pedophiles, but they're importing immigrants so they can kind of re-engineer the population to get democratic victories. But what they have in common is the idea of evoking primal fears of being annihilated, being replaced, plots, and so it, you know, graphs onto conspiracy theories. It's it's one of these paranoid theories that, as you see, has been going on for a hundred years because it lends itself to, like all good propaganda, to being uh, adapted for every place and time. Professor Ben-Ghiat, conservative Wyoming Republican Representative Liz Cheney, who uh, came out against the attempted coup and has since been uh, basically thrown out of the Republican Party leadership, she's accused her party's leaders of enabling white nationalism, white supremacy, and anti-Semitism. What should our listeners know about the Republican Party's promotion of racist, hateful rhetoric, and the toxic and violent effect these conspiracy theories are having on our country? Well, there's the us or them, which leads people to feel that they have to do extreme things. That can lead to everything from a kind of, I see January 6th as a kind of leader cult rescue operation. We have to keep our leader in office or else. Right, So it leads to acceptance of non-democratic and violent actions. It's also designed to play on these primal anxieties of being controlled by others, whether it's Jews who manipulate everything behind the scenes or QAnon, right? It's a cabal of Jews and liberals and blacks and pedophiles. What's so terrible about the mainstreaming of this extremism, it's appearing everywhere around our country Taken collectively, all of these theories are designed to uh, wreck civil society, to wreck the horizontal bonds of community that bind us and keep our societies healthy, and to get people in a mind to follow demagogues like Tucker Carlson. I was on MSNBC last week, and I called him a fascist demagogue. And I, I study fascism, so I don't actually use the word lightly. But he has mentioned great replacement theory 400 times in episodes, separate episodes, 400 since 2016. And as a historian of propaganda, I know that that's exactly what you need to do to get people to accept this as dogma. Propaganda works through repetition. Over and over, you hammer home the same message. And so... He's just doing it in a very concentrated fashion. But around the country, GOP politicians are having their own versions of these kind of replacement, puppet master, all of these shadowy images. And they're working together to really um, harm our democracy. As you're saying here, 
seems that the United States is facing a fascist threat today? And if so, how should defenders of democracy respond? I think that we underuse our power as um, citizens and also as consumers. I'm also a big believer, because it's backed up by uh, studies, in the power of nonviolent mass protest. And we had two good examples just very recently in America, the Women's March, which made had a direct out, you know, influence on the 2018 midterms. It brought over 90 candidates uh, into office, you know, historic levels of women and people of color now in office. And then, of course, the Black Lives Matter protests, which were multi-generational, multiracial, the biggest, you know, movement in American history, which directly influenced voter turnout, and we got rid of Trump that way. So I foresee um, a new round of such protests. I also would hope we would have consumer boycotts of uh, these businesses that are, you know, backing haters. And the effect will be limited because there are many business owners and corporate CEOs who are who are for the Republicans, no matter what they do. But that doesn't mean that we can't uh, try and influence them and pressure them. That was Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Learn more about the normalization of white supremacist violence in U.S. politics by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The U.S. recently marked a grim milestone in the death toll resulting from the two-and-a-half-year COVID-19 pandemic, with more than one million Americans who've now died from the virus. Among wealthy industrialized nations, U.S. COVID-19 deaths per capita are the highest in the world. The COVID virus spread easily in America's state and federal prisons, where inmates are living in close quarters, social distancing is nearly impossible, and building sanitation is poor. As of early May, more than 2,800 U.S. prisoners died of COVID, with another 300 prison staff members also succumbing to the disease. Despite the high rate of coronavirus transmission in U.S. prisons, and cumulative death toll, governors in eight northeastern states did little to use the power they have to commute sentences of prisoners whose lives were in jeopardy due to the pandemic. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Here she summarizes her group's research, which found that almost none of the eight northeastern states increased their rate of prisoner commutations during the pandemic at a time when reducing prison populations was critical to save lives. The overwhelming conclusion that we came to was that states in the Northeast, for all that they are, you know, they, they uh, consider themselves to be better than other states on criminal justice reform um, or, or more progressive than other states often, um, the estates have granted very, very few commutations over the last two, uh, two decades. Right. And I think it was like Rhode Island hadn't done any and, and Vermont hadn't done any because they don't have that in their criminal justice vocabulary or something. Can you explain that? Yeah, we found something a little different with every single state. All of the states are uh, very interesting. Connecticut was interesting in part because uh, we requested data from 2005 to 2021 and Connecticut only gave us data for 2016 to 2021. But what we do know is that out of 224 applications for commutation that Connecticut received in those six years, only five were granted. 
I know it's not particularly exciting to describe a chart on the radio, but if I can paint a picture, um, between 2016 and 2018, you see the number of applications for commutation every year go up and up as people bank on former Governor Malloy being more likely to grant applications as you reach the end of his term. All in all, he grants four commutations out of hundreds that he received. And then in 2020 and 2021, it drops to zero commutations. And moreover, Connecticut actually paused their entire commutation process where they weren't even reviewing applications during those two years, which is funny and disturbing in my view, because it is a global pandemic. If you are a rational criminal justice system at a time when people's lives are threatened behind bars, uh, when case rates and death rates are extremely high uh, behind bars, and when people's prison sentences are going to become death sentences unless they are released, uh, you want to be releasing more people. But Connecticut just paused their commutation process entirely. And, and we should say this is under a different governor, Ned Lamont. Do you know anything about the people who were filing these uh, petitions for for clemency, what they were incarcerated for. We, so we don't know that. That's really hard data to get. What we do know is that people only apply for commutation if they really think they can get it. It's really difficult to apply for commutation. So the people who are applying, right, in, in Connecticut, for example, you've got about 14,000 people in state prisons. The people who are applying are people who think, I actually have a shot at this. They may be incarcerated for a very low-level offense, they may be you know, serving a, a sentence that nowadays you would never be sentenced to that much time for whatever crime it is that they were convicted of. They may have a, a very solid case that they're wrongly convicted. Um, they may be really old or really sick and applying for commutation just based on the fact that being in prison is going to kill them. And that was not the intention or the spirit behind the sentence that they received. It could be all sorts of reasons. And we don't really know, we don't have data on, on these individuals, but we do know that people only apply for commutation when they really think they have a shot. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other states. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, just a couple highlights from the other states. Uh, Vermont, which is one that you mentioned, Vermont does not seem to have a process for commutation at all. Um, but they got back to us and they said something very interesting. They said that it's in the spirit of our state constitution for the governor to be able to commute sentences. Um, but there's no process. So as a result of there not being a process, uh, nobody ever applies. So nobody has been granted commutation in Vermont uh, for the last two decades. Rhode Island has granted uh, only one commutation uh, since the 1950s. And actually, no, it was not a commutation at all. It was a pardon, and it was a pardon for a man who was already dead. Massachusetts has not granted a single commutation in the last two decades. Uh, New Hampshire, uh, only 15 commutations uh, requests have actually been received, and only one uh, grant has been issued. Um, in New York, the state where I live, it looks a little bit better at first, if you just glance at the data, because you can see, okay, you're, you know, you've got you've got way more commutations in absolute terms. But when you consider the fact that fifteen thousand applications have been processed in New York over the last two decades, it comes out to a success rate for those applications of less than 0.3 percent. So none of the states that we studied actually did very well. But again, what I think is so disappointing and so uh, deeply disturbing about these states is that uh, most of them granted very, very few commutations, if any at all, during the COVID-19 pandemic, when so many lives behind bars were being lost, uh, so many people were in danger, and there was such a compelling case for releasing more people, even people that in normal years might not have a very good case to make to get out. 
what do you hope will happen from shining a light on this particular uh, issue? Well, I hope that it, it causes people, especially people who are you know, in, in charge of making policy around criminal justice in, in these states, think about why they are not using this tool that is so uh, such a longstanding and effective and important tool for criminal justice. I hope it changes some people's minds because there's been an attitude both at the state level and at the federal level for the last few decades that says, you know, once a judge makes a decision, once a judge sentences someone to prison, there's no reason to revisit that. But that's not true. That was Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Find links to the group's recent research papers and reports by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. issue of inflation, along with a pandemic that won't quit, right-wing political extremism, and worry about the ongoing war in Ukraine, are among the top concerns for many Americans. But the current rise of inflation, the biggest increase in prices in about 40 years, climbing to 8.3% in April, is uppermost on most Americans' minds. Surging energy and food prices, spiking inflation around the world, are linked to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine and subsequent sanctions imposed on Russian oil and wheat. But there's a growing body of evidence that indicates many corporations are exploiting the rise of pandemic-linked inflation to maximize their profits at the expense of working families and small business. Your reporter spoke with Mike Mitchell, Groundwork Collaborative's Director of Policy and Research. Here he discusses his group's investigation that reveals corporate America is taking advantage of the pandemic to cash in, and why he believes Congress should impose a windfall profits tax to rein in corporate profiteering that's yielded the highest corporate profit margins in 70 years. One of the things uh, that we've been paying a lot of attention to for the past few months is inflation, um, and trying to understand the role that corporate concentration, that is, uh, the more and more power that corporations have day to day, uh, the role that it has in raising prices and making it harder for families to make ends meet. Uh, and what we're seeing today is that not only are corporations uh, responsible for a large share of inflation in this current moment, a uh, large share of rising prices, uh, they're bragging about it. Uh, you can go under earnings calls um, at any given time over the course of the year. Uh, and on these earnings calls, CEOs, CFOs, they have to be honest. They can't, they can't lie to their investors. Uh, and they are actively boasting uh, about how they're able to raise prices well above um, costs, uh, increased costs that they're seeing, uh, and consumers are footing the bill. Um, and so we think that it's really important to, to lift this message up and make sure that the individuals across the country, lawmakers, understand what's happening and, and act accordingly. Provide our listeners with some examples of some of these companies. And I know there's a list of them, including 3M Corporation, Kimberly Clark, MasterCard and Visa, but maybe to talk about some of the uh, representative examples of these corporations and the price hikes that they're invoking that really have nothing to do with their increased costs. Absolutely. So 
Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, you can log on to any of these earnings calls at any given time, and you'll hear um, CEOs just absolutely bragging. Um, and, and, they're, and they're saying this in, in plain English. Um, the CEO of grocery, uh, the grocery giant Kroger told investors a few months ago, a little bit of inflation is always good in our business. And then, of course, right after that, they announced a, a range of price hikes. Um, Hostess CEO um, in, in March of this year uh, said, you know, we're seeing consumers experiencing a lot of disruptions. Uh, it's a, a large range of variability as we throw throughout, as they, as they flow throughout the year. They're losing benefits. They're moving to a normalized COVID environment. They haven't fully recognized that they're absorbing pricing. Uh, that's, that's their CEO saying that, you know, the day-to-day tumult that, that consumers are going through is a distraction uh, from the fact that they're paying more when they go to the grocery store. You can look at home essentials like diapers or cleaning products. You can go into oil and gas and our auto industry, and you'll see CEOs talking about the ability that they have in this moment to raise prices uh, with, with little pushback. Um, and they can because in many of these industries, they have huge, huge market power. There is no alternative for consumers. Uh, and that has huge consequences, and, and it means that ultimately consumers are left uh, footing the bill. What can Congress do in terms of reining in these exploitive price increases amidst inflation? There is something called a windfall profits tax, and there's historic precedent for levying such taxes on big corporations that are engaged in price gouging. That's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, in times of uh, of emergency or in times of war, we've had you know war profiteering rules in place. Uh, states all across the country have uh, laws on the books around price gouging and profiteering. Uh, this is not something that's a, a real foreign idea or something that's unheard of, um, and is actually fairly commonplace. Um, but in terms of uh, an excess profits tax, you know that that's one strategy that looks to ensure that in moments of emergency, large corporations can't take advantage of consumers. Uh, by raising their prices to an unreasonable level. Um, it, it also serves as a really significant disincentive to raise prices um, and, and ensures that any of those excess profits uh, that corporations are seeing as a result of some of these practices goes back into the kinds of investments that we know help families, into the investments that ultimately strengthen our infrastructure, which we've seen has been fairly brittle during this pandemic. Uh, so, so, you know, an excess profits tax, um, going after uh, large corporations and looking to break them up via antitrust policies, um, looking to make sure that ocean shipping uh, has, has appropriate reforms. Uh, there's been recent actions on that front. Um, are all really important things to to make sure that you know corporations are behaving, make sure that they don't get too big, and then make sure that we have the the infrastructure robust enough to handle demand. That was Mike Mitchell, Groundwork Collaborative's director of policy and research. Learn more about the group's investigation into corporate pandemic price gouging by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KMUD in Garberville, California, KODX in Seattle, Washington, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.